He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 3, 2024, here with my good friend, Troubadour Dave Gunders. Troubadour, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Craig. Rick Salinger is one of my guests. The other one, Tom Costello, who is one of the senior correspondents for NBC News, their authority on outer space, aviation, He's covered the stock market. He's covered everything. He's worked overseas, so has Rick Salinger. They're buddies. I have an embarrassment of riches this week. What can I say? Lucky us. I'll, I'll tell you what's great about both these guys and a little different about our show this week. It's apolitical. These guys are journalistic pros, and they value not displaying their politics on air, sort of like a judge. Do you know what I mean? They want to be objective. Well, I, I, I understand. I think, and I think that's great. I'll believe it when I hear it. <laughs> because even journalists, you know, even on, from a journalistic standpoint, you, you, you have to get into politics these days. You have to make, make uh, I'm telling note you, of it. You and, don't watch as much news as I do. And generally, you are kind of right. But if you watch Tom Costello and Rick Salinger, I don't think you will be able to tell me what their politics are. Right. Okay. No, okay. I see what you're saying. Do you okay. know how I know these two media superstars? No, no. Way back when. Back in the 80s, when I became a young prosecutor, occasionally the media would interact with me. And as I became more prominent, it happened more often. And my attitude was always to return their calls, speak with them, answer their questions. Right. And so I developed a lot of relationships. That's how you build a career. Well, I was fascinated, but these guys have both met beautiful wives in Europe when they had overseas assignments. They have wonderful families, and they hung out together in London. We get to hear them talk about it. It's sort of like when Johnny Carson would have on uh, Don Rickles and Bob Newhart because they were good friends, right? and they would talk about their travels, but they were different people. It's a tough time, though, to be a journalist. I mean, you know, I was, print journalism is in such, pro, you know, in, in such right. bad, a, a bad situation. That's and, what we talked and about. Then, and then the, there's just the physical threat of journalists, you know, and um, in, in the wars around the world. We talked about that, it's too. so important to have them. Yes. It's so important to have good people, like you say, who aren't pushing their own agenda. Right. We're not going to talk about Donald Trump today, other than to note his March trial in front of Judge Chetkin and Tanya We Trust, but she can't do anything without an immunity ruling, so she took the case off the dock. It looks like New York may go first, and down in Fulton County, Bonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA, has acknowledged in a pleading she started up a romance with Chief Deputy DA named Nate. And uh, now they've got problems, Nate and Bonnie doing the naughty, 
And uh, it happens all the time in every workplace, right? And so the last thing that should happen is Donald Trump should have that inert to his benefit. Yeah, and um, I can say that those kinds of uh, scandals mean nothing to me. I mean, people get together, so it's such a terrible thing. Right. I don't, it's probably not protocol, right? I, I talk about that a little with Rick Salinger because he got his wife through another... They were both reporting on something overseas and different organizations. And my wife was with the Denver Public Defender's Office. That was scandalous because I was a DA, if you want to talk about scandal. But what's it got to do with the price of applesauce in China? What's it got to do with Donald Trump's guilt or innocence in terms of trying to screw with democracy in Georgia? But that's as political as we're going to get. But we have to talk. Rick's covered a lot of wars. Everybody's got to stay tuned. Rick Salinger, it is such a beautiful interview, the definitive Rick Salinger interview. You can skip around on this podcast. We're going to hear from our troubadour, his great song, Easier Said Than Done. But Rick Salinger has covered wars, a few wars, and he talks about that. And that's a tense time, and America is striking 85 targets Mm. in Iraq and Syria aimed at the Islamic Republic of Iran in retaliation for three service members killed. What do you think? They were killed on a ship? What happened? What happened? No, they were know. at a base in Jordan, and uh, these Iranian proxies keep peppering them with uh, drones and killer this, killer that, and they finally hit a, a building where a bunch of service people were sleeping in three American service members are dead now. So you can't kill Americans with impunity. No. And so this is the retaliation, and uh, it's sort of like, I don't know that it's going to make it done. It's sort of like, you know, sex in the office place. Oh, I'm shocked, you know, Mm. that we have to strike somewhere in the Middle East. It's it's sadly not that shocking anymore, is it, on a Friday night? We've done it before, you know. I think about when Trump, that was like his first, probably his first presidential action was was uh, lofting those those uh, missiles against Syria, right? Right. Early, early in, in his administration when the, they had used chemical weapons against his own people. Right, and that? he killed the head right. of the, the Iranian uh, forces, and right. he trumpeted that. Although when you hear it was all about making himself look good as opposed to any really tactical this or that, but we're not going to talk about Trump. Trump. We're going to okay. talk about music. That's better. Is that okay? More than okay. All right. Did you have something more to say about those subjects? Just that we're doing, it's the Houthis too. We're, that's another, uh, you know, uh, another Iranian of, proxy. Right. Yes. And uh, we'll but they have their own grievances, but you can almost say that Ukraine is a Western proxy. Right now, Europe's funding them, but we're not so much. But we're not going to get political. We're not going to get dragged down because we have these two titans of journalism. And we talk about it, especially with Rick at the end and Tom too, the importance of getting right information from objective media sources. Right. Trust it. And these guys are that. I'm so honored to have them on. More so now. And the other thing that comes to mind, Craig, is AI and and, and how, you know, how I read read, um, that there are these, um, you know, basically bot chat. Yes. um, You know, false um, 
Yeah, you know, false reporting. Yeah, cyborgs. Fal- right, a blending. Ex- Everything's right. happening, and they're so that's more a, diffused audience. All the more reason for really good journalistic sources that you can go to. Yeah, right. Yeah, easier said than done is your beautiful song tonight. Yeah, love that one. And you know why it's perfect? Because I end up asking both these guys something that didn't make them nervous. I asked them, "Do you ever get nervous?" And they really don't, except Rick said, if I'm not prepared. But they're professional. Now you're going to be doing your solo act. It's coming up this Friday. You haven't done that in a long time. Ever. All right, get close to the mic. Tell everybody how you're feeling. All right, so I'm having my first solo gig ever at at, a little place called The Alley in Littleton on Friday night. And you've played with a million bands all around Denver and Boulder and America, too. And I love playing with bands. Uh, mostly, I, I booked this gig because I write a lot of songs, and I wanted to bring them out and, and play them, get, get some of the songs heard. So your song, Easier Said Than Done, it's kind of a humorous song about a gathering with the family where you don't talk politics. Perfect for this show. But it's also not that easy for a lot of people to get up there and speak or for people to get up and sing in front of an audience. That would make me nervous. I'm starting to get nervous already. <laughs> I know. Thank God we have some booze in your hand on this Friday night. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. But speaking of musicians and doing things at a later stage in life, I hope you don't take offense. No, this is I'm to- totally down with that. I'm, I'm proud of that. Look at Billy Joel. No, I don't want to look at Billy Joel. No, you want it. Did you hear his song, though? Really? Is that a new song? It's a brand it's new song. It's a beautiful song. song. It's called Thank you. Turn the Lights Back On. I was wondering why you sent it to me, but when you told me it was a brand new song, oh I Oh my gosh, it. it's so good. He, like wrote, he wrote his first song after more than 30 years. Amazing. But you know what? It's a beautiful song. Have you ever done anything for more than 30 years? Not yet. Rick Salinger, 30 years at CBS4. He's coming up after Tom Costello, who's... Been at NBC for 27 years after decades in Denver journalism, too. I am blessed. I have my troubadour, Dave Gunders, with me. It's a beautiful night in Colorado. We have two Colorado media legends coming up. After we hear our troubadour, Dave Gunders' song, Easier Said Than Done. Here's the plan. With all of our shows, we indicate where the interviews come up. I don't want you to miss a thing. Maybe you're a big fan of Rick Salinger. Go right there if that's what you want, because it's sensational. It lasts about an hour. Tom Costello, my God, the guy pulled over at a Marriott. He was stuck in Washington traffic, but it is one of the best interviews ever. Your definitive Tom Costello Colorado story. I'm proud to present it to you. Tell a friend, subscribe, share. Five stars on Apple and or Spotify would be superb. This is a wonderful episode 194. Enjoy Tom Costello and then Rick Salinger after listening to Troubadour Dave Gunder's wonderful song, Easier Said Than Done. Thanks, Troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. And thanks to you, Craig. Shabbat Shalom. Steady, trying to 
catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. 
And being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. I am Craig. Craig Silverman. A voice for victims. Gosh, what a great honor to interview Tom Costello. Frequently, people get asked the question, who can you trust in the news anymore? And I say, how about Tom Costello? I've known him from his Denver days, and now he's been decades with NBC News. You never hear anything bad about Tom Costello. That's because he's a first-rate journalist. Let's find out all about this Colorado kid. Tom, welcome back to your home state of Colorado. We broadcast all around the world, but I like to focus on Colorado. Hey, I'm all for that. And you're very kind to invite me, Craig. I remember you and I first uh, started getting to know each other when you were with the Denver DA's office. And I was a young whippersnapper reporter at Nine News. uh, And I followed your career from afar. So uh, it's always good to talk to somebody from back home. Right. You used to interview me. And uh, I wonder how many people you've interviewed in your life. It's kind of intimidating thinking about interviewing you because you probably interviewed tens of thousands of people. Oh, I think probably uh, I've lost track. You know, you don't keep track of that sort of thing. But uh, it's been a wonderful, great career, you know, starting at CU when I was just at the campus radio station. Then I was a writer at Nine News in Denver on the overnight shift for the 6 a.m. news. Then I uh, moved to El Paso, Texas to start my on-air career at at the ABC affiliate in El Paso. Spent two years there. And covering news on both sides of the border. And then, boy, was I lucky. I bounced right back to Nine News, being a young 25-year-old, I think. And uh, it was a dream come true. That's where I always wanted to work. Uh, and then, you know, the rest has been a fantastic voyage. But it is it is all, for me, it's, it's, it is home. I still watch Nine News regularly, uh, remotely here. I still have, read the Denver Post every day. I miss the Rocky, of course. Um, and try to stay in touch as much as I can with uh, with everything going on back home. Here's the cool thing about your Wikipedia page. I don't know if you've checked it lately, but you're in a category of famous people from Arapahoe County. So I want to go before I see you, tell everybody where you grew up in Metro Denver, how you became so smart and educated. Well, you're very kind. Uh, I, I need you as an agent, I think. I need somebody to be pushing, uh, I'm put, raising and I'm flying my flag for me. Yes. Uh, listen, I grew up in, little. well, what was then Littleton, now Centennial, down around Arapahoe University, Arapahoe University, more or less, went to Arapahoe High School. Um, in fact, you know, the current president of CU, he and I went to the same junior high school, which we didn't realize until I was up there recently for a commencement speech. But uh, And then, you know, went to CU uh, out, out of high school. And loved every minute of, of it, of course. You know, I think it's the most beautiful campus in America. And, uh, and But I'd always dreamed of working for Channel 9 since I had been watching Channel 9 as a kid. You know, the old, the good old days back with Stormy uh, Rotman doing the weather, of course, and Mike Nolan doing the, doing the sports. And you had Ed and Mike and team. 
so yeah, to uh, to be able to to work there was just a, a fantastic opportunity. Of course, I know about you and Todd Solomon. He was my guest on episode ninety seven, Todd Solomon. But here we are, episode one ninety four. I do want to hear about that commencement speech at CU. I have my son up there now. God willing, I'll be there 2025, I think, for his graduation. And uh, I missed yours. Tell everybody what it was like from your perspective. Uh, the greatest thrill of my career. And I've had great thrills. I mean, and I've had great honors. And honest to gosh, I was just in Hollywood emceeing a, an event I do every year with John Travolta. I'm not trying to name drop. My only point being I've had some marvelous ex- opportunities. But to stand in Folsom Stadium uh, with 35,000 people in the stands because that was the first graduation where they had everybody back post-COVID, right? So the, the stadium was filled. With, with not only the students, the graduates, but all their families uh, on a beautiful, beautiful, typical bold day in May. What a career thrill for me and the thrill of my lifetime to be uh, to stand on that stage. And, and, you know, I just thought it was absolutely thrilling. But my message to the students, that was 18 months ago, but courtesy of YouTube, you can still watch it, was really essentially we got to listen to each other. We got to stop the nonsense of trying to vilify everybody. You know, when you and I were kids growing up in Denver, did you ever ask your neighbor what their political affiliation was or who they voted for? No, you know, we didn't care, right? Uh, and and I, my point was, especially in Colorado, you know, Colorado has a tradition of getting stuff done, getting working together, rolling up your sleeves, and uh, kind of that Western spirit and. So my, my message was be an example to the country because we need some of that. But anyway, I don't really want to talk politics, but that was kind of the core of my thrust, the thrust of my speech at CU uh, back in 2023. Right. Let Colorado lead the way. And oh boy, with the prime time in Boulder, we all knew about Boulder ever since I went to CU Law School. Uh, I've loved it. You love it, even though we grew up in Southeast Denver area. It's such a beautiful area, but prime time, you're an international traveler now. How much has that elevated people talking to you about the University of Colorado? You know, what's funny is you, I've run into people all over the country and all over the world, and how, how frequently they bring up CU, because they know that's, you know, where I went to school. Um, and it's also funny how often they they recognize me my gosh i've been recognized on the streets in scotland in qatar in brussels and 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 so sometimes they recognize me from when i was at cnbc covering the nasdaq stock market and that was 20 something years ago they'll say how are my stocks doing today i'm thinking my gosh you know i've been i've left the nasdaq 20 years ago uh, i'm not really sure how your stocks are doing but it's a small small community and coloradans uh one day i got off of a plane down in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. I was there to shoot a story for the Today Show. Got off a plane, and as I'm walking down the Brett Jet Bridge, some passenger stops me, Tom Costello, Nine News. <laughs> I thought, Nine News. Now you're really going back, Nine News. That's been a while, but that just tells you the reach and the power, I think, of some of those brand names in Denver. Boy, occasionally people say to me, yeah, you're a Denver prosecutor. Right, that was... Uh... 1996 when I left, and similar to your journey, but I still am proud of my affiliation with the Denver DA's office, and it's coming open. John Walsh, my guest last week, and then Leora Joseph's coming up. She wants to be the Denver DA. Beth McCann is leaving the job, but just to 
Talk a minute more about Nine News. You travel the world, you say you tune in. What is it about Nine News? And I think it's sustained. My episode 100 guest was Kyle Clark, and I think he's far and away Colorado's leading news guy on Colorado's news station. Yeah. Do you agree? Uh, I, I think he is very talented, and boy, Channel 9 is lucky to have him. And I, he has created a name and a reputation for himself in that city uh, and and has really helped Channel 9 take it to the next level, I think, especially in the new age of, of media. Um, you know, it's funny because when you have when you grew up in Denver, I grew up in Denver, you, you don't re- you don't really realize how good the news is and was. Uh, we were served by some of the best television news organizations in the country, Channel 7, Channel 4, Channel 9, especially the big three. Um, and all of them, we're all friends, you know, and, and they are all fantastic reporters. Rick Salinger, who I know, you know, is now stepping aside at KCNC, for example. Paula Woodward, a dear friend of mine over at Channel 7, John Perugia, you know, and you've got some of the world's best photographers as well. So it was, we didn't realize growing up in Denver how good it was. But when you leave Denver, you you realize, my goodness gracious, they really set the standard, and they do. Uh, Gary Shapiro, as you know, retired last year, and I did a video for him from the NBC Newsroom and in Washington. And I just said, you know, how, how good, so long, farewell, Vita Saint, all of that. Uh, and I said, but I can tell you, everybody in this newsroom knows the reputation of KUSA and Nine News. It's absolutely true, and I and I think the same as could be said of KCNC and KMGH. Uh, these are these are powerhouse stations that have done a very good job of trying to stick to the truth and to the news and being objective providers of the news as best they can. All right, let's move along because well, before we do, you made the big jump to NBC News. That was three decades ago. I think you've been with them longer than Bob Hope or Johnny Carson. I don't know. <laughs> I mean. And do you get awards? Do you get like a watch for your 25th year? It's amazing yeah. to last that long in that industry. And and wasn't Nine News part of NBC? So haven't you really been part of the same company for a long time? Uh, so I kind of had this uh, unique Denver story. The, the I left in September of 95. I left Nine News to go to, uh, to, to leave TV altogether. I moved to Brussels. My wife is Belgian. I had gotten married the previous year, went to Brussels to go get an MBA, to go to grad school in Brussels. Um, And I left the very month that KUSA switched from being an ABC station to an NBC station. So I was in Brussels getting my MBA. And uh, Roger Ogden, who used to run Channel 4 in Denver, later to run Channel 9, Roger Ogden had that very same month taken a job in London running NBC London, NBC Super Channel in London. I immediately reached out and I said, listen, when I'm done with grad school, you know, I'd love to come over to London. So as it happened, it, it worked. Uh, I finished grad school in Brussels, got my degree. Our kid was our first daughter was born that very that very month and then moved to London and was working for CNBC as an anchor uh, in London for several years. So for me, it started with CNBC covering business and economics in London, then in New York. And then NBC News brought me to New York, NBC News, New York, and then NBC News, Washington, the, the late Tim Russert. Brought me here to D.C. God, I love Tim Russert. What a great interviewer he was, right? On Meet the Press, he would dole yeah. it out equally and, and just good questions. Nobody could replace Tim Russert. That must have been a terrible blow to you when he passed away. 
It was. I was actually in the edit bay when he um, in the edit and the edit suite at NBC News Washington when he collapsed. And, um, you know, I was there when the paramedics tried to revive him and then they rushed him to the hospital. And unfortunately, he didn't make it. Uh, but he was the gold standard for not only how you how you cover Washington, but also how you represent Main Street America. Main Street America doesn't really care about all the, you know, the ins and outs of uh, legislation on Capitol Hill. Uh, they just they're they're just trying to put food on the table and pay the bills. And having him having come from Buffalo, I think he really lived that. Uh, and I got to say, I think that we at, at the network are well served when our correspondents and our anchors are from Main Street, America. You know, I'd, be, I'd love to tell everybody is off. They're sick of me saying I'm from Colorado. Um, but I love to say that. And I love to talk about, you know, the how I think that helps, you know, provide a bit of an outside the beltway perspective on issues. And a lot of my colleagues are also from uh, around the country. Pete Williams, of course, was from Wyoming. Uh, he and I used to argue over which is the better state, Wyoming or Colorado. And I said, well, can I just make the point? Do you know how Wyoming? Well, I won't say it because it's a little bit crude and off point. But the, we had a it's good okay. back and forth. It's okay. We like those jokes. <laughs> Does it involve wind and passing wind yes. up in Wyoming? Which, and which way the, the trees blow, yes. And yes. which way they bend, yes. <laughs> but he's a good guy. But, you know, I think that uh, the more that we bring that outside and across the country perspective, to um, network news reporting, especially, we're all we're all enhanced by that. Gosh, I appreciate Tom Costello. If you don't know, this guy is creative. He's stuck in D.C. and he couldn't get to the network to do the interview, so he stopped at a Marriott. And if you hear anything <laughs> in the background, this guy knows how to get it done, and it sounds great. You're coming through loud and clear. We've talked about Colorado, but I want to live vicariously through you because I've just kind of been a Colorado guy my whole life. Living in London, I talked to your buddy Rick Salinger who said he hung out with you over there. He in did. London. Yes, he did. Yeah. Tell me he, what uh, London is like and living there. How long did you do it? Would you recommend that? I've never been to London, England. Do I have to go? Oh, I think that if you're if you're privileged enough, you have a few extra dollars in the bank account and you're thinking about where you should go. There are some cities you've got to hit. And I think London is there. You've got to hit London. You've got to hit Paris. I've, I've been very fortunate. My wife, as I mentioned, he was Belgian. Uh, I'd always wanted to live in Europe uh, and I always wanted to get an MBA. So I literally we picked up from Denver, quit my job at Nine News. People thought I was crazy. And I moved to Brussels. And I started grad school in Brussels, got an MBA there from Boston University, which had a graduate center in Brussels. I was there. We were there for, well, I did a two-year accelerated program. I did it in one year because we got pregnant with our first daughter. So uh, finished that, then moved, moved to London for three years. We were there when Princess Diana died. Um, and, and then from there, moved, moved to the States, back to the States. But... Um, you know, I think it's it's a phenomenal eye-opening experience to live overseas, and especially when you can when you start to appreciate countries uh, do things differently, um, not necessarily better or worse, differently, and take it all in and appreciate the differences. I think one of the first things I learned while living overseas is, and people have lived far, you know, a lot longer overseas than I have, but I've traveled extensively overseas. Stop judging. Stop judging. Nobody cares who has the better tax system. Nobody cares who has a better this or that. Uh, every country offers differences and appreciate the differences. And, you know, I, if, if the 
that's probably a better way to live our lives, appreciate each other's differences as opposed to judge. One city that gets judged a lot, and now my wife and I are empty nesters, and we've always talked about living one year in the Big Apple. You've done it in New York City. How long did you live there, and do you think that's worth doing? That I mean, I'm exhilarated there in short bursts. I don't know what it would be like to live there for a year. So I was living, we were living in New Jersey, uh, and then I would commute into New York City every day because Jersey is far more affordable, right, than you commute into New York City. It's, it's the whole situation in the Big Apple and the surrounding Metroplex. It is extremely expensive. I mean, even New Yorkers who love it to death will tell you it just the cost can drive them outside. That's, that said, you know, people will tell you there is no place like the energy and the excitement of living in New York. I think that's true. And I'm also now of the opinion, I take it in, in slow or small bursts. Uh, when I go up to New York about once a month or so from DC, I'll stay there a few days, then I come back. Um, I'm still a Colorado at heart. I need my elbow room. I need my blue skies, my green grass. I get more of that in DC than I do in New York. Well, you have chosen to live in D.C. now for quite a while. Do you consider that your home? Don't tell me you're rooting for the commanders or anything like that. <laughs> the who? I think the problem is the who? Nope. <laughs> this team has really struggled, as you know, here in Washington. Uh, it is a great city. We live in actually the Maryland, you know, DC, it's D.C., Virginia, right. Maryland, right there at the intersection. We live in Maryland. Uh, we have raised our kids in a fantastic school district, um, and we have we live right next to a national park. Literally every morning, I have deer and fox in my yard. Who would have ever thought that I see more wildlife in the Metro Washington D.C. than I did growing up in Denver? I, I'm just astonished by that. You know, um, there are eagles that soar over on my house because we have we're near the uh, huge national park with Great Falls, Virginia. So it is a, it's a it's a great great area to live in great schools um you got to kind of treat the politics stuff that gets a little bit old you got to kind of push it out of sight out of mind to some extent and because because I don't cover politics I cover aerospace and and space aviation and space especially um I'm walled off from some of the drama thankfully well let's go to outer space because I'm fascinated I'm no science student I'm a lawyer for God's sake but the web telescope, the discoveries, tell us how exciting it is and, and why we should pay attention. Well, I listen, I think if you it doesn't matter when you grew up, I, I think many of us, if not most of us, are just absolutely captivated by what's out there, what's in space. Uh, whether you stare up at the night sky, whether you are a Star Trek fan, whatever the case is, we're captivated by it. And uh, it, one of the, and I, what's what's great about covering space for me at NBC News, every every shuttle mission, you know, the last fifteen years of shuttle missions, every SpaceX mission, um, is that you get to talk to the absolute brilliant minds in this. And I was at NASA headquarters about a year ago, and they were just looking at the latest infrared telescope images coming from deep deep space. And I was talking to the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson. And he looked at me and he said, Tom, this has changed my life. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, I used to ask the scientists here, what are the chances that there's life out there? And they've now come to the conclusion, this was staggering to me, there are trillions of stars out there, trillions. 
And that means there are trillions or tens or hundreds of thousands out there of trillions of, of planets. The point being, what are the chances that of all of those trillions and trillions of planets that we might find some planet out there that has life? He thinks it's inevitable. Will we ever find it? Who knows? You know, because it is so, the distances are so vast. But that was mind-boggling to me. Trillions of stars, and every star has hundreds or millions of planets around them, and how many of those might have the potential for life. So th those types of conversations are fantastic. And then, of course, being able to interview and meet people like Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong and Captain Kirk himself. Uh, William Shatner had a long conversation with him as he was going up in that um, Amazon, Jeff Bezos rocket about a year and a half ago. Um, you know, these are these are great individuals, not to mention Elon Musk, who I've talked to many times, and Jared Isaacman, the billionaire who is raising money for St. Jude Children's Hospital by his private astronaut missions up into space. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, and, and captivating, really, profession for those people. And, and the discoveries seem to come just at warp speed these days. See what I did there, warp speed? Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. That picture education at CU and your <laughs> MBA. But how does an MBA and a guy known for his stock market reports on CNBC become the face of aviation and space exploration on NBC? I think you are the star. If there's a mission to Mars, you may be the most famous broadcaster in the world because oh, how, how did you find yourself in such a position how did, yeah yeah how did that happen uh i listen in my business it's very much about being able to tell a compelling story being a good writer and a good storyteller right that's the secret to success at at channel nine channels four seven as well in denver and at the network level um and thanks to the ed sardella school of writing and the gary shapiro school of writing i graduated from Nine News, you know, I, I was a pretty decent writer, and I think that that served me well. The bottom line is, I was at NBC News New York when NBC's aviation and space correspondent Bob Hager retired uh, after an illustrious career that lasted almost thirty years. And for whatever reason, they they looked at me and they said, "You know, you might be a good replacement for Bob." Boy, what a dream come true to cover aviation and space at NBC News. Um, and so I jumped at it. The funny thing is, when I very first started my career, and I mentioned El Paso, Texas, my first reporting job, we used to have a, a, a magazine for those of us in the news business, the Columbia Journalism Review. And one day there was an article in there about a guy at NBC News who was called kind of like their firefighter, the guy who jumped into every major story, the, the smoke eater. And it was all about what a fantastic life this guy had and what a fantastic career and job he had. It was Bob Hager. So who would think 25 years later, I would suddenly be asked to replace him at the network here in Washington. So it meant moving and meant moving from, from New York down to Washington. But um, it's been a fantastic move. And I just surround myself by phone numbers, that people who are smart, 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 and I can call and ask um, any question of whether it's a former astronaut, whether it's a veteran pilot, an NTSB investigator, whatever, people who can help me explain this to a mass audience. Uh, it's been the privilege of my life to be able to cover this. I know your enthusiasm shines through, but is that true of every assignment? Like if you have to do a story on how a sewer works or cricket or anything <laughs> like that, you know, it's, 
I just think that you love space exploration. You love aviation. How many miles have you flown around this world? I can't tell you that, but I did last year, the Today Show, the last day of the year, the Today Show asked me how many, how many cities was I in last year? And I think I counted up that I had flown to how many airports? I think I counted up 25 domestic airports and 11 overseas. I think I can't remember now. It's been a few months since I did that. But, um, you know, it's it's a it's as for can I get excited about a sewer story or crickets? I can actually. I mean, to me, I kind of treat every story like I'm cramming for a test and I can get interested in just about anything. Uh, long enough to cram for a test, right? And learn the highlights. And the beauty of cramming for this test is uh, I don't have to necessarily take notes from the professor. I call up the absolute top mind on any particular topic. They answer the phone and they tell me. Uh, so that really is, it's a great career. If you all, if you love being a student, if you love learning every day about anything, if you're the kind of person who would rather read the newspaper than read the comics, uh, then this is a great job and a great career, and it and I'm just very fortunate. Now, what year did you leave Nine News? Ninety five. All right, I think OJ had already happened, and I was going over to Nine News every day, running out of the DA's office at five o'clock, and sitting between Ed and Adele, and Scott Robinson would be there, and we'd go back yes. and forth on the first break. And eventually, Ed Sardella says, Craig, you're doing great, but you're kind of sweaty and dark-complected like me. <gasps> Why don't you use my makeup a little, blot that on your forehead in the bathroom over there at Nine News. And I carried around one of those makeup compacts ever since. This same exact brand as Ed Sardella, who is, <laughs> he, he taught me how to put on makeup and... What a great guy. You talk about legendary journalists. I yeah. just want to do a shout out to Ed. You already did it, but do you stay in touch with him? Uh, love Ed. Uh, he and I are dear friends. In fact, I was in, he now lives in the uh, Northern California, not far from San Francisco. Um, and that's his home state is California. Uh, saw him when I was out in San Francisco a few, uh, a couple of years ago. And then I was in Denver. Well, I'm in Denver several times a year. But I was in Denver and I said to Ed, hey, uh, any chance at all you're going to be back in the hood, back in, you know, in Denver. Uh, and he's and I said, because if so, I'd love to buy you dinner. And he said, I'm coming. That's all there is to it. I'm coming. So the guy jumps on a plane from San Francisco to come out to Colorado to have dinner with me one night, uh, which was just, a you know, such a, an honor that he would do that. But he and uh, and Roger Ogden and Roger's wife, Tama Lockhart, and I, we had dinner at the Cherry Creek Grill. I think it was Cherry Creek Grill. Uh, the, um, yeah, whatever, one of those down there. Right. The Elway, the Elway Grill. And, uh, you know, he. it's always great to see and talk to Ed because he had those old school journalism values. And what's funny is, is you walk into a, a restaurant with Ed Zardella today, you know, Ed's looking a little older, as we all are, and he's immediately recognized, right? And the... Everybody in the audience, uh, pardon me, in the uh, restaurant turns their head and uh, and starts whispering, that's Ed Sardella, that's Ed Sardella. So he is still a rock star in Denver. God, what a great talent he was. And I love your enthusiasm. When you come back to Denver, what do you think? It's changed a lot, but what's your it perspective? Uh, my, I still have my brother and his family lives uh, in Highlands Ranch, and I've got dear friends, the best friends of my life are still back home in Denver. 
Um, you know, I, like every city, and I, I like every city, there's good and bad, right? I'm, I, it feels so crowded when I'm back in Denver now. And I say that from Washington, D.C., which is so crowded. But the traffic uh, is awfully thick, as you know, and as you guys discuss every day. Um, I'm not crazy about every city in America, of course, is dealing with the homelessness, with crime, um, with drugs, all of that. You know, and so sometimes I, I think it's sad to see some of the developments in Denver. That said, listen, this is still a world class city. I love Coors Field um, and the whole neighborhood around Lodo. I love everything that's happened in the uh, northwest part of the whole city. There's so many great bright spots around the city. It's still a world class place to live. And I literally, Craig, I still at least once a month have a dream that I'm moving back to Denver. At least once a month, I still do that. Does your wife from Belgium share that dream? Does she like Denver like you do? She, she likes Denver, but she's not. It's not in her heart, right? Because she right. didn't grow up in Denver, and she we lived in Denver together. But um, her her heart is really back in Brussels. So she's made a huge sacrifice to leave her home country, live in America with me, uh, and so we're not quite halfway between Brussels and Denver. But, um, you know, she likes living on the East Coast because it's one flight, one flight from Washington, D.C., straight to Brussels. So it doesn't seem quite as far to her as, you know, being out in Denver. She'd like my wife. She says, I'll go anywhere as long as it's one flight from Denver. And fortunately, you can fly to Europe now from Denver. You can get you can get to London direct. You can get to Amsterdam direct, I think. You can get to Munich, Frankfurt. Yeah. Yes. It's really something. You've been so generous with your time, and you're so creative. I've already told this story of what you're confronting in Washington. Give us a news report, just what it's like for metro commuters in the D.C. area, given just the state of the world right now. Well, I'll just tell you, today— This Thursday morning we were recording this. Go ahead. And I, yes, and so I drive into the office. Um, the office is near Capitol Hill. Usually it's going to take me 35 minutes or so, something like that. Uh, today it is absolute gridlock across the entire D.C. metroplex. So D.C., Virginia, and Maryland, because there are huge protests in D.C., pro Palestinian protests. They've locked up Constitution Avenue, Massachusetts Avenue, Union Station, and as a result, the police, which are very, very good at anticipating and reacting to large demonstrations, they start blocking off and closing bridges and exits and major highways and major roads. Uh, so I had planned to get, I had taken an extra, or I plotted an hour and a half to get to the office for this podcast today. And after an hour and 20 minutes of driving, I thought, I am not going to make it. We are not moving. So I stopped at a Marriott and uh, decided it's better to just call you from this quiet spot in the Marriott than trying to continue to fight the traffic, which would probably at least take another hour and a half to get in. You are creative, just like a great trial attorney. You have to adjust. (laughs) And I'm telling you, that's one of the best interviews I've ever done. And it's all thanks to you. What would you say are the best interviews you've ever done? What would you like us to view on YouTube if it's possible? We uh, well, you're very kind to, to ask that. I, I we were particularly proud of a couple of documentaries that we've done, uh, fifteen to thirty minute documentaries that are on YouTube. One of them uh, is is called Battlefield Space, and it is about the ongoing 
tension in space right now between the United States and Russia and China. And what many people don't know is that shots have already been fired in space. Uh, and so we are proud of that documentary. And then another one that we did is called Race to Mars. Uh, that's also also on uh, YouTube. You can check it out there. Um, and then we I had a phenomenal experience, Craig, last March. We were invited by the by the Norwegian Navy, uh, part of NATO, to join a Russian sub hunt in the North Sea. So we were with the Norwegian Navy on a uh, on a NATO assignment for a week out there on the North Sea in these incredibly rough waters. Uh, and we found the Russian subs out in the North Sea and they are surveilling regularly surveilling NATO operations. But what is particularly concerning to NATO command is that they are surveilling all of the Internet and telecom lines that stretch between North America and Europe. They are pinpointing exactly where all of those lines are. And then lastly, surveilling for potential sabotage all of the North Sea oil and gas infrastructures. So it is a uh, it was a fascinating trip. That's also uh, on uh, YouTube. It's called Sub Hunt. Uh, as we uh, as we were searching for Russian activity in the North Sea, all of that, of course, in the context of what's happening with Ukraine. I'm going to put that in the show notes. That's the beauty of a podcast. Have you done many podcasts before talking about your life? I've done not like this. My goodness gracious, this is awfully nice of you. Uh, this is nobody has given me this much time, Craig. Uh, shall we do it again next week? <laughs> I, I wish, but you have to get to work. Let me just ask you this. Of all the people you've interviewed, have you ever gotten nervous? Is anything too big where your heart's really jumping based on a person or an audience or something that's stressful? You know, I wonder if this is similar to being a lawyer and you step into a courtroom. You're scared as hell the first few times. And then as the longer you do it, it's like riding a bike. I don't really get nervous about interviews anymore. I'll tell you some of the most thrilling conversations I've had. I had a phenomenal conversation with William Shatner just be off the record. So this was not on camera. Uh, I was standing at a bar, a private bar that they closed off for an event for us. It was a, well, it's a bar on Jeff Bezos property in Texas. And the next morning, William Shatner is going up on a Bezos rocket. So William Shatner is standing there at the bar, nursing a beer by himself. The guy, 90 years old. And uh, and I walked over to start talking to him. And I had him to myself for 25 minutes. And he was fascinating, sharp as a whip. Doesn't matter that he was 90-something years old and, and now older. Uh, he is passionate about the environment. You know, he's Canadian passionate about Canadian politics, passionate about the water, quality of water, and the shortages across the West. So all of that made him really um, a fascinating guy. And, um, and, you know, it's funny because I asked him about a Star Trek episode. He didn't remember because for him, it was just yet another TV show. He didn't remember the episode. But um, And he's done so much more than just Star Trek. But that was a thrill to talk to him and also to hear his thoughts before he went up in a space and then to talk to him as soon as he landed back down on earth and he got very emotional oh, yeah i don't know if you've, you've seen the oh, video where he literally it was profound he couldn't he could barely hold it together and he said i'm 91 one years old whatever it was he says my life will end soon and i looked out there and i saw black and darkness and he said is that my future is that what i'm going to be facing in death it was very profound um so he was, interestingly, one of the more 
recent fascinating conversations I've had. So if Joe Biden said, hey, get over to the White House. I'm going to send a helicopter for you. I want to talk to you about aviation. That wouldn't make you nervous? Or if Taylor Swift gave you a call, hey, (laughs) let's talk about it. My girls would be thrilled if it were Taylor Swift. Uh, Anytime any president wants to send a helicopter for me, I don't care what party he or she is from, I'll be there. Uh, but we have a pretty good White House team that does that. So I'm going to leave the politics to those guys. Well, get back to your team at NBC. Tom Costello, this was fantastic. I hope you enjoyed it. And let's stay in touch. I look forward to it. Congratulations on the podcast. And my best and my love to everybody out in Denver and Colorado. Uh, as they used to say on KHAL back in the golden days. Remember that? Boy, do a I. Wonderful week. Wonderful weekend in the West. I love you, Denver. That's still in my head so many years later. Thank you, Tom. Take care, buddy. Get back on the road. Take care. Bye. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go and visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey. That's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, everybody. For all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years years and i know a lot of people and if i can't do right by you i can steer you in the right direction my number 303-734-7156 ask for craig craig silverman a voice for victims a voice for people with legal difficulties Gosh, this is so exciting. Rick Salinger, a man everybody respected in Denver journalism for decades. We remember him on CNN as well. What a career, Rick Salinger. I feel so honored to have you on my podcast. Well, imagine how I feel hearing those words coming out of your mouth. I got to know you through uh, the decades, and I was trying to figure out how. I think um, you would call me occasionally with legal inquiries. Other times we would see each other covering big cases in common. What's your recollection of how we got to know each other? I remember once you were headed off to spring training uh, for the Chicago Cubs with your family while <laughs> I was going with my family somewhere, right? That's right. Yeah, I remember meeting at the airport. That's correct. I've forgotten about all that. Well, I think We first met, if I'm not mistaken, going back to the 1980s. I worked for Channel 9 
from 1980 to 86. And during that time, I believe you were a chief deputy DA for the Denver District Attorney's Office, and I covered one of your cases. Which one? I'm sorry, I don't remember. No, it's interesting. I'm trying. I, I know your colleague, Wendy Bergen, primarily covered the Frank Rodriguez death penalty case in 86. Well, she became your colleague at Channel 4. You are Channel 9. No, no, not okay. correct. Okay. No, uh, when I was at Channel 9, she was at Channel 4. And uh, she got in the trouble then. For dog well, fighting. Was, Just yeah, to I tell was, the audience, uh, she, for a story got involved with some dog fights, right, in Jefferson County, as I recall. I love Wendy Bergen. She was so nice to me. In fact, they were responsible for recording that death penalty trial, and she gave me videotapes that are somewhere in my basement. Anyway. Uh, anyway, I, I never worked with her. Because, was, right, you went on to other things. Either in Chicago or London at the time uh, that she had her difficulties all right see you're such a stickler for details i love that about you that's why you're a great reporter this is your story it doesn't matter where you got to know me but let's do just stay there and well let's back up a little bit this is the the definitive rick salinger story i know you had a lot of tributes on channel four and elsewhere but here's where i'm primarily going to shut up and let you talk I want to go back to Chicago. Tell us about your upbringing, your education, and how the heck you managed to become a legend in Denver. Well, thank you very much. Several people have told me I've become a legend, but I tell them, I think that means you're getting old. Uh, But to go back to Chicago, I am from the south side of Chicago, but due to some genetic disorder or something, I became a Chicago Cubs fan, which is the north side of Chicago team. Uh, I grew up, I started in the city of Chicago. When I was six years old, we moved to the south suburb of Park Forest. And I spent uh, all my formative years there before I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana and uh, I had been involved in the high school radio station that we had, and then my college radio station, WPGU, where I have many of my best friends today, I met there. And then after college, I was all set to go to work in Chicago radio, but Chicago wasn't ready for me. So I got a job in Hammond, Indiana, on a radio station, and then later Cleveland, then Chicago in radio, then Indianapolis in TV, Denver at Channel 9 in TV, then back to Chicago in TV at the NBC on station. Then I went to London for CNN and then decided one night that I had been up 48 hours over a couple of days covering the war in Bosnia. And I thought to myself, All right, been there, done that. What do I do next? Where are the people that I know the happiest? And I thought of all those places I have been. 
And it came to me that people that I know that are the happiest are the ones in Denver. So I pursued coming back to Denver and the doors opened wide. And I'm happy to say I have just completed 30 years at KCNC Channel 4 CBS. Oh, man. Great story. Have you ever thought about getting a steady job? Well, you know, those 30 years are the longest I have ever held a job. It's amazing. What a record. And the accomplishment, the experiences. But where did you get this idea as a kid growing up in Chicago to become part of the media? Is anybody in your family connected to the media in any way? Well, there's two questions there. The first one is, how did I get into the media? And uh, the answer to that is, I was on uh, the school newspaper, and then a friend of mine was involved in the high school radio station, WRHS, which we shared. I went to Rich Central. The station was physically located at Rich East. And a friend of mine had a radio show. And I listened to him and I thought, wow, that's really neat. I wonder if I could do that too. And I got involved in the radio station, haven't looked back since. Now, the other question that you asked. Right, and it's not about your son, because we're going to get to Mark Salinger at Nine News. But I want to know about your parents, your uncles, your aunts. Were they encouraging you? Did they say, hey, what do you mean you're going to be a radio guy? Did they pour water on your dreams or did they nurture it? I would say they nurtured it. Um, I had no one in broadcasting in my family or journalism, and uh, I was free to pursue whatever I chose. And I chose broadcasting, and I'm so glad that I did. I've had an amazing career. And what is it that you like? Is it the storytelling? Is it the fact that you are making a presentation to a lot of people, sort of a Nobody forces you to be in front of the camera or taking the mic. What is it about you that makes you so good at this? Well, thank you. You're very kind. Um, I, I like the whole process. I like coming in in the morning, getting an assignment, and facing the challenge of getting it done by the end of the day. Of course, we do longer-term projects as well. But I really like the rhythm of getting that assignment, figuring out how to do it, who to interview, what video we need. Then uh, once that done, logging the video, uh, writing the script, sitting in on the edit whenever possible, and then presenting it on the air. Uh, and even after all these years, I still say to myself, that was amazing we were able to accomplish that at the end of the day. Which part of that is your favorite? Well, I would say being out of the newsroom, on the streets, whatever the story is, and covering it. The bigger the story, um, the more likely it is to be history that I'm witnessing, along with all the other reporters and photographers, etc., who are there too often. That is bad news, like uh, all the horrible stories uh, involving shootings, massacres, 
that I've covered here in the Denver area over the years. Way too many. They take their toll. What about the presentation part, though? Do you ever get nervous? I get nervous when I'm not prepared. Um, If I am standing in front of a camera and I have no idea what I'm going to say, no idea what I'm going to be asked, no idea what the story details are, then I'm nervous. But I try not to be in that situation all the time. I try to be prepared when I'm in front of the camera and that I'm not uh, nervous. How many thousands of people do you think you have interviewed? I don't know. No idea whatsoever. Did any of the people you interviewed make you nervous? Um, That's a good question, too. I would say I have been nervous at times. Uh, Sometimes I feel like I'm going into an interview on a subject that I am knowledgeable about, and then this person that I'm interviewing on that subject uh, makes me feel like I'm not knowledgeable at all, that I'm kind of stupid, really. But what about a great show business person or a political superstar? You've had those encounters. I can tell you the only guy who I felt a little queasy, strangely nervous, beyond excited, when I asked Tim Tebow a question once. And I thought to myself, what the hell is wrong with you? Anyway, so... uh, Well, that brings to mind... um, sports, and uh, that's an area that I don't feel confident in because we have a sports department. Uh, I'm not part of that, but occasionally the sports stories become news events. And at times I've had to go into the Denver Broncos locker room or the Colorado Rockies, and here are these people that are heroes to so many, although I would call them heroes necessarily. I think heroes has a different definition than just being able to play sports. But uh, I go into the locker rooms and I have to interview these people. And there I'm a bit nervous because I'm out of my element. And in the Broncos locker room, I remember the atmosphere is almost reverential. There's like, uh, you don't... uh, jump up and make a scene, stick your microphone in somebody's face and um, speak on top of whoever's asking a question. You have to have them stand by their locker in a certain way. And uh, you ask questions and wait for the answers. Very different than covering news. So I was uncomfortable doing stories with the sports in that manner. However, I, when I was in Chicago, I had the opportunity to cover a very big issue, and that was whether to put lights in Wrigley Field, where the Cubs play. They did not have lights until August 8th of 1988, their first night game. Yeah, I remember. Let there be lights. I'm old enough right. to remember all those things. And Chicago um, just seems like a great place to get away from. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm from Colorado. My one year, I went back east 
to try to play basketball, I realized, one, I was was not going to play basketball, and two, what you said, Colorado seems like the best place to be. So I've spent my whole life here, right? But you've traveled the world and come to the same conclusion. I could tell you one place. No, no, I wouldn't badmouth Chicago like no, you just did. No, no, but no. I no, but I haven't really been there. I'm not bad mouthing Chicago. I, I went well, back. Well, you said east. it's a good place to get away from. I wouldn't agree with that at all. But look at you. Look at Jim Benjamin. Look at Dan Kaplis. A lot of people have moved from Chicago to Denver, right? And I don't know a damn thing about Chicago, except that I know a lot of people who have moved from Denver, uh, from Chicago to Denver. So I retracted, Counselor. I'll, I'll retract that remark. I did drive once to Chicago to go to Wrigley Field to watch Rick Russell pitch against Steve Carlton. Very memorable. And my brother and I made such great time until we got within like a mile of Wrigley Field. And then it was a crawl, which was very frustrating and part of possibly my animus towards Chicago. But I would rather. The other thing I want to try out for a Maccabee team. Do you know what a Maccabee team? It's, uh, I do. I do. And I have a friend who met his wife through a Maccabee event. All right. I already said I had these delusions of being a basketball player. So I tried out for the Maccabee team in Chicago. And I was toasted really by other Jewish guys for about three days in the Chicago Bulls practice facility. I got blisters on my feet. I did not make the team. And another reason I don't like Chicago. Is that okay? Maybe I should lie down and and talk about all this. I don't think you have made your case, counselor. All right. Well, you grew up there, and it's obvious you have great affection. And I know Jim Benjamin, who's been a guest, still goes back there, and everybody does. So, but you brought up. I, go ahead. I would. I would say, and I tell people this: that I would rather live in Denver and visit Chicago than the other way around. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I'd say the mountains uh, are a big part of that. I think the attitude here is different than Chicago. I think people are here because they want to be here, not because they were born here and don't know any life outside of here. Uh, I think the weather is so much better here. Uh, I like the lifestyle here. Right. Think about me. I've been here my whole life. You've been here for several decades now. And before 36 that... 36 years total. Right. Two stints. And now you see the changes. And think about another three decades added on for me. And it's like, we love Denver. We wanted to do well. We'll get around to that. But that confluence of sports and uh, your involvement... I do remember one case of mine you covered, which was my civil lawsuit against the late Demarius Thomas. And people can look it up if they know how to spell Demarius, which I do, D-E-M-A-R-Y-I-O-U-S, the great receiver for the Broncos. And I the had, yes. Late receiver Yes, he, he passed away. And uh, he had a brain injury possibly that led to a convulsion and he died in his own home in Georgia. Before then, you can look it up. 
I sued on behalf of a young woman who was victimized by him and Parrish Cox. Parrish Cox, more so, a defensive back of the Broncos, went on to play for some other teams. But that was a celebrated court case. And then a civil action. I looked it up. That was back in 2012. You covered that case. It was pretty fascinating, wasn't it? Well, why don't you remind people what the case was all about? And as you do so, keep in mind that Demarius Thomas is a legendary name in Denver. And a lot of people still regard him as one of the best who died a premature death. I agree. And everybody decided to just honor him because he was dead and it was too soon. And I think it's too soon, too. But not to mention uh, that if you Google my name and Demarius, you will see the allegations and you will see what happened with Parrish Cox and you will see the civil justice system at work. And this is an interview about you, Rick, but you did cover the criminal case, the civil aspect, and you did a good job. But you guys made a decision right at Channel 4, and I think throughout Denver media to not only not bring up that sexual assault allegation, and Demarius was not the person who was accused of impregnating my client. That was Parrish Cox. So you can look that up, or the horrible vehicular assault with Demarius at the wheel on Auraria Parkway, right near the ball center, put a divot uh, in the median on Auraria Parkway. You covered that too, right, Rick? Yes. Right, and he got charged with felonies because other people in the vehicle got hurt as it rolled over, which is hard to do unless you are not driving well, inebriated, etc. He was prosecuted. But when he died at such a young age, Bronco legend that he is, I think editorial decisions were made just like I'm making to not dwell on it, right? I probably dwelled on it enough. I think uh, that is true. I think when Kobe Bryant passed away not too long ago, there was the same attitude then. And you remember the Kobe Bryant case here in Colorado that almost made it to trial that uh, we covered for a long time. I was up there with uh, Alex Stone. I had the luxury of being paid by KOA to be up there and Channel 7. I was their legal analyst. I forgot who all covered it. Was that Channel 4 you were working for then? Oh, yeah, yeah. And were you assigned to that case? Yes. I covered that from pretty much the start to the unexpected finish where uh, they reached some sort of a settlement um, her, with her civil suit, the woman that he was accused of uh, sexually assaulting. And, and you remember uh, who they her... dropped the criminal charges. Right. right. Do you remember who her civil lawyers were? Uh, yes, I do. I can picture John right John Clune, who's at Hutchinson Black and Boulder, and an out-of-town lawyer, famous from Jean Benet, named Len Wood. Len Wood, who's now gone off the deep end on MAGA and uh, got disbarred or he surrendered his law license. Oh, my goodness. But back to Kobe Bryant, because I can't talk about this enough for somebody who went through it like you and I did in the media. And, and probably we could talk about 
Columbine or or Theater Massacre, but Kobe, I thought it was not a good prosecution. I don't think it was fair to the late Kobe Bryant, so I put it in a little bit of a different category. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think he betrayed his wife. He was there for knee surgery. Stedman Hawkins, he had a beautiful, uh, I mean, what a graceful athlete. And then he suffers his first knee injury, which is pretty traumatic. He's going to have an operation the next day. Uh, a lady shows him to his room. They get friendly, way overly friendly. She reports rape, and then we were off to the races. I remember I was coming home from a client had uh, invited me to a wedding at the Broadmoor. It was the 4th of July, whatever year that was, but... I was driving with my wife on I-25 when the news came out that Kobe Bryant was arrested for sexual assault in Colorado. And sports are a big part of my life. And basketball, as I keep mentioning, and to have that happen, it was just one of those moments. You say you were involved from the start. Were you as startled as I was? Did you know who Kobe Bryant was? Well, I certainly knew who Kobe Bryant was. And when he uh, was accused of sexual assault and faced criminal charges here in Colorado in Eagle County, I knew this was a major, major story. Um, You've got one of the biggest athletes uh, in America charged with a horrible crime. And not only his reputation, but his freedom was at stake. Yeah. For the rest of his life, Lifetime Offender Act in Colorado. And then he hired a great lawyer who I had known and Pam worked Mackey. with. Yeah, Pam Mackey, former Denver public defender. My uh, you know, contemporary when I was a Denver DA, uh, roaming the fourth floor of the city and county building. And oh my goodness, I, I just didn't think that was a good charging decision. Uh, it should have been investigated more and it proved out when the case got dismissed. And it was embarrassing to the late Kobe Bryant. And we were up there. I was in the room for the preliminary hearing. I bet you were too. I'm sure I was. Yeah. And and uh, the victim testified, the so-called victim. Right. Right. We did not name her. I remember that. Right. And uh, I know her name because then there was a civil suit brought in U.S. District Court. I remember. Yeah, I think her name was on that. Yes. Maybe not right away, but they had to put her name on it, if I remember correctly. I remember it, but it's just not necessary. And certain details came out that just made the allegation not credible, in my judgment, and it was correctly dismissed. Other people might disagree, but anyway, let's move on from Kobe Bryant and Marius Thomas. They're both dead. May they rest in peace. Both were incredible athletes, gave us a lot of thrills. Oh, my goodness. I think when Kobe Bryant passed away and his daughter, too, I just think the world started deteriorating. Remember COVID happened right after that? I I, I just, there was a timeline, and he he was such a rare talent. It was unbelievable. Uh and, and gifted in the media, too. I think he would have gone on to do remarkable things. He he, he wasn't just another guy. That, that was tragic. And what's your dominant memory of Eagle County? What I remember is that 
that you know the the media gatherings up there where you'd be in the room and celebrity journalists would be in Edwards, Colorado, all at the same restaurant trying to crowd in. That was pretty thrilling to me. I remember Dan Abrams and uh, and uh, what's that guy Gregory uh, from NBC. You know, big timing it. But what do you remember about that? Well, I'm embarrassed to say my lasting memory of that whole case, and how am I going to put this? I was in the men's room doing what you do there with Kobe Bryant right next to me doing the same thing. Oh. That's a memory. I, I, I wanted to ask him a question, but I didn't feel it was appropriate at the time. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yes. In the Eagle County Courthouse, that's where it was? Yes, in Eagle. Oh, that's amazing. You know who I remember being there covering the case? Kimberly Guilfoyle. Do you remember her being there? I do. No, I don't. I was on a panel or two with her back when she... I thought she was normal, but it's a crazy world now. Let's go back to some other celebrated cases. Jean Bonnet, God knows I did a lot of media work on that. How about you? I didn't do as much as a lot of other people did on that case. Um, trying to remember, I think it coincided pretty much with the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, here's the sequence, because I can remember, because it was towards the end of my DA time, toward the end of Bill Clinton, right? I think it was about 94 or 5 when the Murrah building got bombed. But Chabonet gets killed Christmas of 96. Were you working in Colorado then? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, the Oklahoma City bombing happened in April 1995, if I remember correctly. And then uh, when they charged the two defendants, that was in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And the case was given to Judge Richard Mage out of uh, U.S. District Court in Denver, who then ruled that the trial should be moved to Denver due to pre-trial publicity in Oklahoma. And so even before it moved to Denver, I was out there in Oklahoma City covering uh, the fact that the case could be moved to Denver. Yeah, let's focus on Oklahoma City. Consequential event for our country. Um, Devastated me. I was still in law enforcement at the time. And just that picture of the fireman carrying out that little baby named Bailey, Yes, I interviewed her mother. Oh, my gosh. How did you get so involved in the coverage of Oklahoma City? Uh, Denver sent a lot of correspondents right down there. I suppose from all over the country they came. Oh, certainly. Certainly. Uh, This was a uh, top-tier event, the uh, trials of the two defendants in the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, 162 people killed in a terrorist act against the U.S. government. Uh, It doesn't get much bigger than that. And I covered it from the time that there was a possibility it could move to Denver until Timothy McVeigh's execution. 
I went to Terre Haute, Indiana for that. Right. And um, my former DA colleague, Nathan Chambers, was Tim McVeigh's lawyer, uh, effectuating his desire to be executed. Am I right? Yes, that's what it turned out to be. He was, uh, McVeigh was fine with uh, becoming a martyr, if you will, for his uh, cause, whatever that was. And in the end, he was put to death at the uh, Federal Correctional Facility in Terre Haute, Indiana. I remember his last meal. I think it was two cups or two quarts of chocolate chip ice cream. I'm thinking about my chocolate chip ice cream last night. But I woke up. That's the difference. And did you ever get to talk to McVeigh? Or did you no. d- did you have feelings about capital punishment before that? Were they altered at all through the process? I talked about Frank Rodriguez. I wrestled with the issue. Still kind of do. But uh, that was an amazing event in American history. Yes, it was. And as far as the issue of capital punishment is concerned, whatever my feelings were, I put them aside because I am a reporter covering an event that has nothing to do with me personally or my positions on controversial issues. So I did not take any stance. I did not want to express my opinion in any way on capital punishment, that was up to the courts. That's the beauty of great reporters like you and your buddy Tom Costello. And we will get to him and your son and the dictates of your profession. I think it's wise for you to be apolitical. I also think it's wise for you to not necessarily spout off on divisive social issues. But Surely, over the course of your long career, you've been in a situation where something repulsed you and you had to express yourself. Am I right? Well, when they toss to you on the air and you're at the scene of something horrific like Columbine or the Aurora Theater shooting or the King Super massacre in Boulder or so many others, you know, they say, Rick, this is tragic, isn't it? And you can't disagree with that. Um, and of course, you're repulsed by the murders. So many murders had to cover over the years. And when they happen all at one time and it becomes a massacre, then it's even worse because... There are so many victims, so many family members. I hate having to bother family members of victims to ask for their comments at a time of mourning like that. Right. And it it takes a toll. And during the Oklahoma City bombing trial, oh my gosh, all the victims involved, coordinated by Robin Finnegan, right? She was the victim advocate. And uh, last... Episode episode 193, I had John Walsh on, who's Hollywood handsome, right? He came out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A., and next thing you know, there he is on Channel 4 with you covering the Oklahoma City bombing trial, 
And Tony Kovalevsky, who was sort of new to town, was trying to compete with a guy like me. Scott Robinson was there with God knows who at Channel 9 at the time. I remember those days, right? And it was frustrating because it was hard to get in the courtroom. How often did you get in? I think uh, whenever I wanted to. Uh, well, I, I think was we at, had a permanent the, pass. Well, there was a listening room. You had a permanent pass. I didn't. But it, it was hard to get in the actual courtroom for a guy like me. Anyway, I think each each network probably got assigned one or two, and you were the guy for Channel 4, right? Yes. And uh, uh, Terry Jessup worked with me, who was a reporter at Channel 4. And uh, we... Even uh, Stephen Tubbs did some work for us at the time. I remember that. And back in the day, did you have beads that went out to all the affiliated networks? Because I remember like Pam Saunders used to coordinate that for ABC through Channel 7. How does that all work? Did you find your broadcast being played outside of Colorado as well? Sometimes. Uh, CBS has a affiliate service called NewsPath. And if there is a story of national interest in Denver, they'll ask for that story and they'll feed it out to all the affiliates and they can use it as they like, either as a full report uh, with the reporter or they could cut it down and have one of their anchors speak over the images from it. Uh, so yes, there would be a lot of uh, exposure in a big story like that. All right. You were already a big-time reporter when I was a junior deputy at the Denver DA's office. You were nice enough I to... I wouldn't go that far, well, because... I was a big-time reporter. <laughs> well, right. But thank you. I didn't become a chief deputy DA till 1985. So it was yes. toward... Right, but in 1984, June 18, 1984... Oh, I knew I, I, I was a deputy DA... And not in a place to really influence the outcome of the horrific murder of former lawyer, radio talk show host, Alan Berg, who was gunned down in the 1400 block of Adams Street on the evening of June 18, 1984, right after he was with my friend Judith Berg, dropped her off. And I couldn't do anything about it because I was just a deputy DA then. And normally was my boss. This man had been killed for being Jewish by a bunch of neo-Nazis. And I think a lot of us learned about it on Channel 4. Rick Salinger, that's, do you remember how that day started? Just another day and, oh my God, no murder has really rocked Colorado more than that in my memory. Oh, I remember that night very well. Uh, 1984, I was working at Channel 9, and I was in the newsroom when we got word that Alan Berg had been shot to death in his driveway. And I remember it was dark outside, and I remember running out there to Adams Street, and there was Alan Berg lying on his driveway. It was that fresh still. At the time, I remember thinking to myself, I hope, although maybe it's kind of uh, bad to think of it in this way, I hope that this was a domestic 
incident that led to his death. Never did I imagine at that time that he was killed by a band of neo-Nazis amidst the plot to take over the government and form a country in the northwest of the United States. I mean, it was just crazy. And I don't know that Allenberg was murdered for being Jewish. Possibly that was part of it. Probably that was part of it. But he was murdered for what he said on the radio, denouncing those types of people and their words. One thing we know about the order and Bruce Pierce and Robert Matthews, who led the gang, they loved the Turner Diaries, the same book that McVeigh loved, right? McVeigh even sold that book on the road. So the Turner Diaries, go ahead. Bible, a must-read for white supremacists. Right. So uh, we do know what motivates these guys. They're white supremacists. They like the Turner Diaries. And I do think Allenberg was killed because he was Jewish and on the radio and outspoken against neo-Nazis. And uh, I, I just like to learn everything I can about that murder. And you were there. I wasn't. What else can you tell us? Well, it was a long ordeal. It wasn't like case solved overnight. Um, I think it was Lou Kilzer with the Denver Post who first reported the link to the neo-Nazis. And I remember that was the start of trying to follow the trail of these people, who they were, what they believed, what they did. And it turned out to be a whole box full of crimes that were involved. And eventually, they were put on trial in federal court in Seattle, where I was sent to cover their trial, where they were convicted. There was also a trial involving the Alan Burke murder in Denver later, when I was not working in Denver. That's right. And in fact, through my podcast, I've had a fellow contact me who transported some of the defendants to U.S. District Court in Denver. But I'm fascinated about that Seattle trial. It was a RICO trial. Kevin Flynn, who I know well, I won an Emmy with him on Colorado Inside Out. And the late Gary Gerhardt wrote a great book that's being made into a movie. And then Stephen Singular has written a spectacular book. He has been a guest I'm sort of a geek about this murder. And I got to talk to the late Norm Early about why it wasn't prosecuted in our building, Denver District Court. I thought it should be. Now, I never, I listened to him a lot on the radio, but I never met Alan Berg personally. Did you? Did you know him? No, never met him personally. I certainly heard him on the radio. And he was one of those guys who have become more prevalent today, who soak up the controversy, who stir the pot. And uh, I think there was a movie, something along the lines that he talked himself yeah, to death. Yeah, talk, talk to Death by Oliver Stone. I don't think that was very fair. It's like a lot of Oliver Stone movies. I, I, I have had the uh, pleasure, it was my episode 101, you can hear Judith Berg talk about what happened 
And I've tried to figure out who Alan Berg's real friends were, because I know the Denver community, and I've had them on the air. David Savage has been a guest. The late Al Zinn, a prominent Denver lawyer, he used to hang out. And uh, his protege, Harold Dubinsky, gave me two hours of tapes of those guys. Anyway, they're just... Uh, something haunting about the murder of Alan Berg that, you know, is resonant today. This stuff about white supremacy and all that, everything we thought was old is new again. And I know you don't want to get political or anything like that, but there are certain common themes that emerge, like white supremacy, uh, assault weapons. And I have the luxury of speaking out. And let me just get... uh, I'm trying to think what other great cases we haven't talked about that we covered together. You tell me any other standout cases or any other Allenberg memories. Just tell me this. Up in Seattle, did you get to know the prosecutors and the defense attorneys? And have you stayed in touch with any of those guys? No. Um, I covered the case, but I wouldn't say that I got to know the attorneys in those uh cases. Uh, I'm trying to remember if there was a reason why I didn't get to know them. But I can tell you, I did get to know the other reporters that were covering the case, including Kevin Flynn. And, um, oh, I don't know if I should tell this story, but I guess I will. Now you have to. Uh, uh, We went to dinner one night uh, while covering the trial. And you had to put down your name to wait for a table. And we put down the name of a member of the order of this neo-Nazi group who was still at large. Holy cow. Which one was so, that? Was that Richard Scatari or something? You hit the nail on the head. <laughs> hey, that's pretty good trivia. How many people would get that for a thousand on Jeopardy? Richard Scatari. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, I interviewed David Lane, who is the uh, driver of the getaway car in the Allenberg murder. I interviewed him in prison where he lived out the rest of his uh, life in Canyon City. Yeah, that guy was the... Oh, uh, Florence. He was was the go-between. He went up to Richard Butler's compound in Idaho and told them, hey, listen to this Jew in Denver, Allenberg, right? David Lane was the local connect. Correct. Yes, he was. And he brought those people to Denver to carry out an assassination. That's what it was. Do you remember who else was on their assassination list? Oh, trying to. See, now I'm giving you trivia. No, I, I don't think Morris remember, at least right now. But the, a guy oh, yeah, who, more Southern Poverty Laws. Right, sure. and a guy who just passed away, thank God, of natural causes, the late, great Norman Lear. They wanted to yep. kill him, that Jewish World War II hero who created all those great sitcoms. He was all on the their family. Message. Yes, yeah. Maude, the Jeffersons. Anyway, just before we leave that, you know, my boss was Norm Early who made the decision and he said, one, the federal rules of evidence are a little better. I didn't really buy that. But then he said, we don't have adequate security at the city and county building, which I thought was a terrible thing to say. 
we can't handle a big case like this. And again, Norm has passed away. I did talk to him about this on my podcast. You can look up that episode. And it just occurred to me recently that it wasn't maybe concern for everybody in the city and county building, but think of his own personal security, being a prominent African-American DA going after a neo-Nazi gang. He would put himself in the crosshairs. And for what? Because all those guys didn't end up dying in prison. Maybe it was the right decision. But I thought Bruce Pierce, the guy who actually used the assault weapon to fire all those bullets into Allenberg's body and my I guessed a few episodes ago, Bill Buckley was there at the autopsy that night. He says he was first on the scene to see him down in the driveway. Pierce was already uh, a repeat felon. He'd been to prison a couple of times. He was ripe for the death penalty. And we had one in Colorado then, and I believed in it. And it's okay. In my office, it was okay to, you know, have disagreements. But it was uh, Jeff... Jeff Bayless and Dave Heckenbach, chief deputies who had the case, not me. And uh, what about the United Bank murder? Another case I didn't have, uh, but I remember it well. Were you on that at all? Well, first of all, I remember all those names you just rattled off. Feel free to to go back. Some of them quite well. Yes. But I was not on the uh, bank uh, murders. I was not working in Denver at the time. What year was that? That was right when Norm was running for D, uh, for mayor, which was ninety three. I was probably in London then for CNN. Yeah, you and CNN. Tell everybody about that experience. How long was it, and was it a great experience? Did it help make you the man you are today? Absolutely. Um, that was, I would say the high point of my career in that I was covering major world stories. Um, No sooner was I hired by CNN in uh, 1990 than Iraq invaded Kuwait. So I was off and running right away. Um, I was based in London, but I traveled all over the place uh, with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. It didn't take long before I was sent to Iraq. I made five trips to Iraq, uh, usually a month at a time. So I spent a lot of time there. I remember my very first trip. Do you remember, Craig, that they were holding hostages, uh, Americans and other expats, and Saddam Hussein was using them as human shields. Oh, yeah. All right, so I get to Baghdad, and I was relieving Jim Clancy, who had been the CNN reporter there just previous to my arrival. And I get there, and he says, hey, Rick, would you like to go to a party tonight with the hostages? And I go, what? He says, yeah, the hostages are having a party. Well, that was... Strange. Uh, some of the hostages were being held, as I understood, at uh, sites that the Iraqis thought the Americans might bomb. And so they wanted to deter that. But other hostages were just hanging out 
in Baghdad. They couldn't leave the country, but they weren't being physically held, so to speak. So they had a get-together, uh, a little party, if you will. And I went uh, to this party, and it was so weird being with these people that were essentially captive. Uh, I believe I remember one or more of them asking me to call their wives for them. It was surreal. And another trip to Iraq, when the UN weapons inspectors were there, um, the UN inspectors got locked in one of the sites that they were checking out by the Iraqis, and they were not allowed to leave until they agreed to certain demands. I don't remember right now what the demands were, but I became very friendly with David Kay, who was the lead inspector. Uh, David passed away within the past few years, but became very friendly uh, with him. And uh, <laughs> I remember when I would go cover the inspectors being locked in this facility, I would bring them a few magazines to read. To keep the did, you ever, did you ever worry about being taken captive? I mean, it's happened to other journalists. You know, I didn't worry about it, but maybe I should have. It certainly happened to other journalists. Um, in other places, Syria most notably. Uh, but I didn't worry about being taken captive. There are lots of times I worried about being shot or hit uh, with an explosive. But I didn't uh, worry about being kidnapped at all. Maybe I should have. When were you most frightened for your own personal safety? Well, I covered uh, three wars. First, the Gulf War. Uh, then I covered the breakup of Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Croatia, etc. And then I covered uh, Somalia, where the U.S. Uh, got involved with trying to wipe out the hunger situation and got into fighting with a warlord and his henchmen. But I think where I was most personally in danger, I remember in uh, Yugoslavia, what was Yugoslavia, a bullet sounding like this that went right by my ear. And I instinctively ducked, but it would have been too late because had that bullet been, you know, an inch or so closer to me, I would have been killed. I wouldn't have been able to duck on time. But I remember it, it, that. It flew right over your head? Right by my ear. Oh, by your ear. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were other times. And Wait a second. So, so if, I, if, if it would have been me, it would have hit me in the shoulder? I mean, have you ever thought about maybe a taller guy would have been killed by that shot? You know, you're finally pointing out to me that there is something good about being short. I'm, I'm just saying that there are a lot yes. of good things about being short. One, you don't see a lot of tall, older guys, right? I mean, you'll probably live to be, a, I don't know, a million years old. I hope so. Anyway, I'm just trying to have some gallows humor. I'm glad you never got hurt. Were you ever hurt doing the job? No, no. Um, I'm very uh, thankful that I wasn't, but so many journalists were, including one of my photographers. Um, people might remember this story. Her name was Margaret Moth, 
uh, first-class photographer for CNN, and she was in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, and she was with uh, others in the CNN crew, and they were in a van that went down into the parking lot of the Holiday Inn in Sarajevo, and a sniper fired a bullet through the window of that van as they were going down the ramp that went into, I believe it was her right cheek and exited Ah. through her left jaw, if I remember that correctly. Uh, She was seriously, seriously wounded, given a transfusion in Sarajevo, sent to, I believe, Frankfurt, and then the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where I later visited her. She survived that and was even able to go back to work. But eventually that transfusion of blood in Sarajevo gave her hepatitis and she later passed away. So what I did and whatever consequences I may have encountered were nothing compared to so many other journalists. How many years were you with CNN? I was with them for three years. And Ted Turner running things back then? Uh, who, who was your big I boss? I don't remember. No, I don't remember. Did, did you uh, like CNN? Did you think it was a good operation? And what do you think of it now? No, I liked CNN. I thought it was a very good operation. And I think the same of it now. I think uh, it is uh, what this country needs is a news organization that does not take sides. Uh, Some people may argue that for a while they were taking sides, that they became too liberal. But when I was with them, it was straight down the middle. And I think that's the way that they are now. All right, let's get to local news. You were at Channel 9, then you spent uh, those decades at Channel 4, um, and you have a son, Mark Salinger, who's a star at Channel 9. He just, I couldn't be prouder. Right. He, he's covering this immigration crisis, the homeless crisis, uh, like no other. That's his beat. Part of it is he speaks Spanish. Do you know where he got that from? I happen to know the answer to that question. When I was in London, I met my wife, Isabel Marti, who was a journalist from Spain. She was based in London, and we met at a UN peace conference on the war in Yugoslavia. Well, the peace didn't work out so well, but we ended up getting married and having two magnificent boys. You mentioned Mark, who's 28, and a uh, anchor and reporter at Channel 9. And my other son, Eric, is 26, in his third year of medical school at the University of Colorado, and shoots. What, you couldn't get him a job at Channel 4? The one that wants to be a doctor, he didn't. Oh, oh yeah. Mark, the jur- no, 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 I, no, I was kidding about Eric. Why would oh, a guy I- be a doctor if he could work at Channel 4? Anyway. Uh, as my people say, Kenahora, Mazel Tov. We see Mark and Eric being a doctor. What could be better than that? And right. meeting your wife uh, while you're doing your job, what a beautiful thing. I met my wife doing my job 
uh, she was in the public defender's office. It was scandalous. Was there any prohibitions on intermediate canoodling back then? Well, this was this was not intermediate, uh, whatever you called it. Canoodling. Uh, she was, yeah, if I was in the same news organization as a woman I was dating, and I was the boss, or she was my boss, then that would be a problem, a very difficult problem. But that, uh, you know, when you meet another reporter from a different news organization, you want to start dating, that's not an issue at all. Boy, it's controversial in DA's offices. I took it a step further by pulling somebody out of the public defender's office. But Fonnie Willis down in Fulton County, it is admitted she started an affair with one of her chief deputies. And it happens in workplaces. We don't need to dwell on that. But I do want to get back to Channel 9 because I sense a conflict. And you know, I like that sort of thing. You've got a political Rick Salinger and your good buddy, Tom Costello. We may as well talk about him right now. But he's a, a political too. You guys hung out in London. Tell tell us how you got to know Tom and why you like being paired and associated with a guy like that. Well, I'm very happy to have my name associated with him. Uh, Tom was working at Channel 9 when I was working at Channel 4. And later, or was it before then? Let me think. Uh, yeah, because I don't remember the sequence of events so much, but Tom was in Belgium and he was reporting out of there. And then I believe he went to work for CNBC um, based in London and we got together there. And I followed Tom's career since then. He has been extremely successful and my hat is off to him. He's a correspondent for NBC News based in Washington, and that's the top of the ladder. And I would say that both of you have lasted a long time with your style, which is good storytelling, great preparation, enthusiasm for your job, and the fact that you are apolitical. I really don't know your politics. You don't really talk about them on the air. You don't let it show. And it's sort of like a judge should be, but you're taking it even a step further in some regards, I think. And I think it enhances your product. But then there's Channel 9 and Mark Salinger, who I see a lot on my favorite broadcast, which is next with Kyle Clark, because I want my news, but I like a little opinion with it. And Kyle Clark to me, has the capacity to be trusted, yet willing to offer an opinion. And he, he'll go after both sides, but uh, he's not afraid for people to think he's this or that. And he was my guest on episode 100, and he just has a different approach. So there's the tension. What do you think of that approach? Well, commentary on TV news goes way back. I remember growing up in Chicago, and watching the station, I would eventually go to work for years later. And there was a guy named Len O'Connor 
And every night on the news, he would do commentary. He would end it with, my name is Len O'Connor. And it would be opinion. And I remember Carl Akers on Channel 9 when I was there doing opinion as well. So I think that is okay so long as it is labeled opinion or commentary. And it's not to be mistaken with news. Right. And it's just a different style of doing things. And yet Kyle is no, superb no, right. No, it's not a different style. It's giving your opinion as opposed to facts. But what I'm saying is Kyle can cover like the Marshall Fire. Probably you were involved in that as well. Oh, yeah. he, he can go there and report on things as good as anybody. And I think when he does his opinion pieces, he might take a different camera angle. There's a slight break. But he's breaking a third wall, right? It's it's like a production where the actors start talking to you instead of just the other characters. You know what I mean? And That's some a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, some people can make it work. And I don't really want it from you, right, or Tom Costello, because you have a bit of a different role. But there are some people who can pull that off. And, and I think there's room for both, right, obviously. And, and, and Yeah, I mean, look at a newspaper. You got an editorial page, which is clearly labeled editorial. Right. But then you've got a guy who's on the reporter page and the editorial page. That's a little different. Although I write columns for the Colorado Sun, and sometimes I feel like a reporter because maybe I'm in a courtroom covering a case. Let me ask you this. Given your career, how many hours do you think you've spent in courtrooms? I have no idea, but it's an awful lot. And I often thought to myself, should I become a lawyer? And the answer was always no. Why? I think you lawyers have a much tougher job. All I have to do is sit there and regurgitate what you guys say in the courtroom or the filings, um, but you have to file endless documents. You have to be able to pick a jury sometimes. You have to be able to question witnesses and get them to say things that they wouldn't necessarily want to say. I think being a lawyer, at least a courtroom lawyer, is a very difficult job, and uh, I'm glad I had mine and you have yours. So though you bridge both worlds. Well, we all have our roles and it's interesting. And I'm worried about the rule of law. And I'm also worried about the role of news. You are the guy who spent so much of your life in the news business. Are you worried about it? Newspapers going out of business, uh, local affiliates struggling. Um, what's the future of news, Rick Salinger? Well, I don't claim to know the future of news, but you're right that I am concerned, as every journalist should be. Um, I think we have seen the definition of news change with some news organizations. They take on a conservative or could be a liberal stance in delivering the news. Um, and our so-called news channels are filled with opinions. And 
I think locally, the revenue situation has changed a lot from when I first started. Um, then we would have, well, when I was first in Denver, we had Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 9. There was no 31, no Fox station. And we had PBS. Channel so, 6. Channel 6. So the pie for all the revenue coming in for advertising was only split up a few ways. So the TV stations, with the exception of Channel 6, because they were non-commercial, would get all that money to divide among themselves. Now you have more channels, including Fox and whatever others there are on the air, plus uh, all the uh, internet websites that purport to be news now. So that pie is being divided up into smaller pieces. So the companies that were getting all this revenue are not getting as much now. We were in what many people call the golden age of local TV news. I got sent to Berlin by Channel 9. I got sent to Paris and London by Channel 4. That was for the uh, death of Princess Diana. Um, we did a lot of big things. It took a lot of money back then. And there's much less of that today. Boy, I can just picture your son, Mark, who I hope to get on the air pretty soon. Um, he's probably thinking, gosh, Dad, you had a better life than I can look forward to. Do you think that's true? Because as a lawyer, I used to be able to walk into courtrooms without metal detectors. You remember those days. And we used to just have a much looser environment. It wasn't the security society. And I don't really... Uh, curse what's going on now. I'm grateful that I got to experience things that my kids won't get to, but I'm sad that they might not. Maybe they'll experience other great things. How do you feel about that? I have two boys. You have two boys. How do you feel about their future? I feel very good about their futures. I think both of them are outstanding young men. And regardless of what they want to do, they will succeed. Um, Mark, by the way, I should mention, is married to another reporter at Channel 9, Kelly Ranke, who uh, they met while still in high school and uh, worked together in Knoxville and now Denver. They both went to USC in LA together. So I'm very proud of that. And I think her future is very bright as well. And I think um, while things are changing through this digital revolution, we're all trying to get a grasp on. I think there will always be a need for news, both on the national and international level, and especially on the local level. Right. Not just a need for news to fulfill our desire to be informed, but to hold our society together, right? It's critical, just like the rule of law. You've had so many stories where you've exposed things in the government. Isn't it vital to our democracy working? Absolutely. 
no question about it. Um, I think if there wasn't news reporting, the government would be authoritarian. I mean, there is news reporting in places that I've been, like Iraq, but controlled by the government entirely. We don't have that here, at least not now. And I hope that it never becomes that way. We hope and pray that freedom of the press will live on and news will be what it always has been, a vital part of our society and our country. Right. And that's why you and Tom are so important being apolitical, because authoritarians can't stand that, right? I don't think a guy like you or Tom could be bought off or otherwise persuaded to tell us anything other than the straight facts. You're not going to let politics get involved, right? Right. But I think I would be blind unless I said that uh, freedom of the press is in danger right now in this country. Right. And another thing, you've got your beautiful son, Mark, in that profession. Will there be future Tom Costellos? Will there be future Rick Salingers? Do you see them coming? Because a lot of people who thought about journalism as a career, you know, they're thinking, oh, newspapers are drying up, TV, the lack of revenue. I just heard Rick talk about it right there. The pie isn't sufficient. What would you tell a young person your son's succeeding, there's still that opportunity? I think it's still there. I think it will take different forms. Um, we are used to network newscasts that cover the national and international news, but I think their budgets are being impacted these days as well. But I think there will always be a need for a network news operation, whether it is on broadcast or online. CBS has started a streaming service called CBSN and locally CBS News Colorado that um, delivers the news around the clock. So I think the future is bright for television, although what form it will take may be played out over a period of years. Um, I have a theory that we all end up on YouTube. Even this show, although not many people follow it because we give them nothing visual, more people use a platform like Apple or Spotify, something like that. But this streaming world is amazing. And, you know, Tom Costello puts out those great documentaries on deep space and whatnot. You know where he told the audience to look for it on yeah. on YouTube. And I bet yeah. a lot of your great Channel 4 work ends up being viewed on YouTube. Am I right? Yes. I am worried that young people are not watching television news like our generation did. I think young people now are getting their news from their phone, um, from online sources that are not trustable, and it's very uh, worrying that that's happening. Yeah, from grifting bastards like Steve Bannon and Alex Jones. But we're not going to get political. I'm going to let you go, Rick, but not without thanking you and giving you one more opportunity. 
in this, the definitive Rick Salinger interview, to say whatever the hell you want? Well, I would like to thank my bosses and my colleagues over the years since uh, we're in Denver right now. I would especially like to thank those who were kind enough to not only hire me, but to keep me on through the years. At Channel 4, Christine Strain, the news director, and Tim Whelan have let me work until the point at which I could work no more. I am 73 years old, about to turn 74, and you don't see that many people that age doing the job that I did here in Denver. And for that, I am forever grateful. Not to get too personal, but did you have year-to-year contracts? How did that go? I mean, I signed a couple media contracts when I was doing radio. It was like one was three years and then one was five years and then it was like year-to-year. But in your business, they don't give out long-term contracts. Did you have to sweat it out every year? Well, the longest contract I had was five years at Channel 4, and the shortest was one year, and that was during the economic recession, and I was told that everybody was just getting one-year contracts. Um, And then there's different kinds of contracts. You could have a five-year contract, but at the end of year two or year three, they could cut you. You know, there are variations on that. And yes, I do. I don't know that I sweated about contracts, but I certainly would ask myself, if they don't renew to my contract, my contract, what do I do now? And I never came up with a good answer. Well, you came up with a great career, Rick Salinger. This is the definitive interview. I can't thank you enough. You are a legend in Denver. Anybody who can make it three decades on Channel 4 and great things at CNN and Nine News before that, and a beautiful family. That's the best part. You're a winner, my friend. Thanks again. You make me feel very good, Craig. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye, Rick. Bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and, you know, meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. 
and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, I told you this was going to be a great show, and I do believe I delivered. It was really my guest, Rick Salinger. He brought it. The thing about podcasting, everybody has a podcast, but not really. How many times do you get to lay down your life story in a little over an hour? Sorry for me stepping on some of his amazing storytelling. But I like to tell my stories, too. I hope you like the show. If you do, tell a friend, subscribe, share, and Tom Costello, my goodness, man, you've traveled the world, and to give me that amount of time, you are a credit to your native state of Colorado, as is our troubadour Dave Gunders, proud Colorado guy. Check him out at the alley this Friday night, his solo appearance in Littleton. It's exciting. He's excited. Have a great, exciting week. And we're looking forward to that Supreme Court argument on February 8th, oral argument on the Colorado 14th Amendment case. That's going to be sensational. We may have a special show between now and then addressing that. You never know. If you subscribe, it'll fly onto your phone. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.